Hi, and welcome to Bread. Twice a year, we dedicate two services to the vision of bread and how we can support the work of the church with our resources. Jesus spoke more about money than anything else other than the kingdom of God. He knew how important an issue it is. Unfortunately, the church hasn't always done a great job reflecting his teaching and his practices when it comes to how Christians should treat our finances. In this series, we want to get back to a Jesus-centered appreciation of money so that we might be the open, generous people God calls us to be, using our resources for eternal good and building the kingdom of heaven right here and now in Los Angeles. Um, So, uh, twice a year, we uh, do two talks uh, on the subject of uh, giving and money. Uh, We do one uh, in April usually, and then one this time of year. Uh, This is the first of those talks, and um, it is about money. I know that's what you were hoping for, and you're wondering why you didn't stay in bed. Uh, But now you're here, you're going to have to listen to me talk about money. Uh, A quick uh, caveat, if you are a guest or visitor, please just ignore um, or don't feel like this, anything I have to say uh, relates to you. Uh, This is for the home team only, but hopefully what I say is interesting. Now, normally I speak about um, uh, money, a passage on money on both of these talks. Next week, I actually am going to do something slightly different. I'm going to talk about the vision for the church. I want to pick up on where we kind of left off at the end of the weekend away about what it means to mature as a church, to grow as a church. I'm very excited about what I feel like God is doing in and amongst our community, and particularly um, the church growing. I'm going to talk quite a lot about evangelism, quite a lot about pastoring, about looking after people. Uh, I'm going to talk a bit about church planting, which could be exciting. Uh, So that's next week. This week, though, just straight money. Yes. Um, I am sensitive, though, about how money has been spoken about in church over the years. Um, Just a a raise of hands if you'd like to. Who has um, heard the subject of money used as a sort of stick to beat you with? So if you're a Christian, you should be giving more money away. A few of those. Who has had the dubious privilege of being around churches that kind of flirt or go full-on relationship with some sort of prosperity gospel? I.e., if you give money away, good things will definitely happen to you because God wants you to be rich. Yep, a few of you as well. Uh, Good. Those are two very good reasons to not speak about money in church. I'm going to avoid those as best as I can. But here is a less good one to not hear about money in church. Most of us don't want to hear about subjects like money and probably sin and probably service and things like that because they cut to the heart of how much we are actually letting Jesus really be in charge of those areas of our lives that are more difficult to give to him than, say, others. We're challenged, aren't we, about letting God into the nooks and crannies of our lives, including into our wallets. This is one of the areas where the rubber hits the road. Uh, Martin Luther said, everyone needs three conversions. A conversion of the mind, Martin Luther said we need three conversions, a conversion of the mind, a conversion of the heart, and a conversion conversion of the purse. 
the hardest of which is the conversion of the purse. Don't picture Martin Luther with a nice lady purse. That's not the point. Jesus, of course, talked a lot about money. Twelve out of his 38 parables are about money. And he did so because money is both well, is a powerful force, and it's a powerful force for good and for bad. So, if you are in either of those categories I just mentioned, please can you avoid beating yourself with the money stick, but also let's try and avoid the pernicious prosperity theology, which has got a lot more to do with Western uh, senses of, I don't know, the American dream, or if you, you, know, you get what you deserve, those sorts of things, than it does the gospel. Instead, let's go for something proper, a biblical theology of money, so that we can be the people that Jesus wants us to be, completely free. Money is one of those things that has incredible power to make us not free, even though we think the more of it we get, the freer we will be. Jesus' desire is for you to be happy. It really is. That's what he longs for. He proclaims it when he turns up on the scene. He says, I have come to declare the year, the age, the eon of God's favor. I am here to change the whole of history, and it is a history now of favor, of good news, of good things for his children. God wants you to be happy. He really does. That's the whole point of the thing. Not the whole point. It's a big point of the thing. But happiness and money are not necessarily connected. Particularly, they're not connected in the ways a lot of society has told us. But he does want you to be happy. Billy Graham said that if a person gets their attitude towards money right, it will help strengthen, straighten out almost every other area of life. So, let us hear about Jesus and his talking on money from Matthew 5, which Nikki is going to read. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey. Who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gave five bags more. So also, the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, but I will, put, I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, 
I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See here is what, what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even when they have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thank you, Nikki. So this parable is told towards the end of Matthew's gospel. It is in what is uh, commonly known as the farewell discourse. This is uh, Jesus' sort of prophetic pronouncements about the coming age, about what is going to happen between the time after he dies and resurrects and he returns again. And uh, the preceding parable in this is about uh, the ten virgins, and it focuses on preparedness. And um, the following parable is about the sheep and the goats, which focuses on responsibility while we wait. And this parable as well is about responsibility while we wait. The general theme is time is short. Use what God has given you for his kingdom right now. Now, there are a few uh, red herrings in this passage that we can get sort of fixated on and actually stop us from uh, hearing what actually Jesus wants us to uh, hear. So let me try and briefly kind of knock those red herrings off their perch. That's not a phrase. Uh, But anyway. Firstly, the master stands for God, obviously, but we should be wary of saying that therefore God is exactly like the master. As Jesus' Jewish listeners would know, God, unlike the master, is neither a hard man, nor does he reap where he does not sow. He is, in fact, merciful and just. So, the reason Jesus has for describing the master like this, which his Jewish listeners would know, that's not really what God is like, is to, um, it's a rhetorical device to make a point. We can all imagine an exceptionally harsh master being highly expectant of his servants to do something with the money they have been given. Well, says Jesus, let me tell you, God, even though he is merciful and kind, still expects something from his people. It doesn't mean that just because he's merciful and kind, he doesn't want us and expect us to do something that we've been entrusted with. Secondly, It is a mistake to read too much into the punishment that is meted out to the slothful servant. The outer darkness, verse 30, is a reference to the Old Testament concept of Sheol, which was this sort of dark, mysterious place uh, that um, no one really knew what happened there. It was the idea that actually, um, uh, after life, we don't know what happens, but we don't want to be disconnected from God, and Sheol was the place where you went. The Hebrew writers actually... Uh, aren't really concerned with what happens when people die because they sort of said, oh, we don't really know. Uh, and there were lots of different theories about resurrection. Some of them believed in that and some of them didn't. Um, but 
more important was the idea that there are two different states of living. There is being alive while you live, and there is being dead while you live. And being dead while you live is um, being disconnected from God. And this is clearly the meaning here, because the wicked, slothful servant is clearly still alive, and yet he is um, separated off from the master's presence. You see, Jesus here is using this parable as a warning It's a warning to the Pharisees. He does this particularly by subverting the Pharisaic teaching. Rabbinic law actually encouraged people to do exactly what the wicked servant did. It was considered by the Pharisees wise to uh, bury your money in the ground so that you didn't lose it. And conversely, doing what the master tells the servant to do, to put it in a bank and get some interest, is prohibited by rabbinic law. So what Jesus is saying is, the rabbinic law, I am turning it up on its head. His point is not necessarily to have a go at rabbinic law. Rather, his point is to have a go at the Pharisees who put all their trust in their interpretation and keeping of that rabbinic law. And what he is saying is, Jesus, I am here now, I have arrived, and I have turned the whole world upside down, so do not put your trust in that. Put your trust in me. I am doing something completely different. Time is short. Do something meaningful for my kingdom, which I have inaugurated, which is here amongst you, and which will come fully, and do it now. That's what Jesus is saying. So, let's unpack the main point. As I said, verse 14, the master stands for God. He gives talents uh, in the Greek uh, to three servants. It's translated um, as bags of gold, uh, which is about right, because a talent uh, was a measure of weight, and it was so heavy that the only way of measuring it uh, was by using gold. So the master is giving money to each of his servants. Now, often talents, you may have heard, mean talents, i.e. it's interpreted as your gifting and your ability, but here, really, the whole point is money. So point number one, God it is who has all the money, all of it. He owns it all, the money in your wallet, the money in your bank account, the money everywhere. All of it is God's. When our girls were younger, uh, this was back in the distant, distant past, we used to give them actual physical cash for an allowance, and they would put it in their piggy bank. Uh, They now have credit cards and bank accounts and whatever and they're just children of the digital age. No physical money at all. I actually found Margot trying to swipe the cover of an actual book the other day. (laughs) It didn't work because it was a book. Anyway, they've graduated from uh, physical money to digital money. But back in the day they had physical money. And as you all know, as an adult, there are times when, as adults, you need physical cash and you've never got it, right? For parking meters, for valets, for tips, you've never got cash. But fortunately, our girls had lots of cash in their piggy banks, so we would borrow it from them. And when I say borrow, I mean borrow and never give back. But it didn't really matter, they were four. They didn't know. And also, the point is, it's not theirs anyway, it's God's. This is obviously not the application of the point. Jesus doesn't say, therefore, you can steal, okay? Particularly from my children. 
There is, though, a more serious point, isn't there? And it's a sticking point. Because really, all of us would actually quite like to be the master. And often, actually, we believe we are the master. It's our money. We earned it. We get to decide what we do with it. We bought it. The shoe's on my feet. The rock I'm rocking. Um, most of you have no idea what that reference is to, do you? It's too old. Uh, anyway, we get to decide what we do with our money. One of the greatest things that I think about this country is the idea of this level playing field where anyone can be anything. Now, that's the idea. In practice, of course, that's not real. Some people have just got all the chips and we haven't got any. Uh, and, you know, make it happen. But in general, the idea of having a level playing field is great, that we can achieve whatever we might want. In the UK, we have this thing called the class system. You'll have no idea about this. Uh, but basically, it doesn't matter what you do with your life, but if you're not from the wrong fa right family, then uh, you'll never go actually be fully included. The beauty of the American system, is much better, is the idea that anyone can be anything. However, and this is the point, if... Um, Anyone can be anything. How are we going to measure success? How are we going to measure whether someone's made something of their life? The most obvious and easy thing to appeal to is money, isn't it? They are, they've done well because they are rich. Unfortunately, what this exposes is the lies of money. That this is actually what life is for. Jesus says it isn't. And it isn't ours. We didn't earn it. It's God's. And he, secondly, is the one who distributes it, just as he likes. Verse 15. Now, the fact that the servants get different amounts of money is not really of much significance at all. They receive according to their ability, not their status. One is not more loved than the other. Indeed, the response to both trustworthy servants is exactly the same, well done, good and faithful servants. They are treated equally in terms of status because all people in God's kingdom are of equal status. You are the person next to you. Everyone in this room is completely equal in God's eyes. He sees all of us in the same light. In need of him and dearly, 100%, without any equivocation, loved by him because you are the same status before him as every single person in this room. The fact that they are given different amounts to start with is not because of their status but because of their abilities. And that is simply stating the obvious, is it not? If we're really honest with ourselves, everyone has different abilities. Some people are really smart, some people are not. Some people are really good at making money. Some people are not. Some people are really good at making businesses work. Some people are not. This is just the reality of the life we live in. Correct? Yes. So some people receive more money over their lifetimes than other people. This is only a problem for us, and if you're finding that a bit difficult, how can that be fair? Of course it's not fair. But it's only a problem if we make one of two errors, or both. One, we believe that money actually 
brings happiness. Or two, that we believe that money is a sign of God's blessing. Neither of these are true. If we are able to free ourselves from those two misteachings, then we will go, of course it's fine. Some people have lots of money, some people have, don't have any. That's okay. The not having any is not okay. We'll come on to that in a minute. But in general, let us not worry too much about where we are in the pecking order. The point is, it's all God's anyway. And his desire is that all of us have an important role in administering what is, and this is the important point, a huge, abundant bounty. A talent is worth about a million dollars in today's money. So the master is giving his servants about eight million dollars in total. It's a huge amount. There is an abundance. God liberally administers his bounty to everyone, asking that we all steward it well. So, do not feel guilty if you have lots of money, and do not feel frustrated. Do not feel resentful if you have less. Instead, follow Paul's example, learning to be content in times of both plenty and scarcity. And of course, let's just be honest, through dint of being able to buy a $4 coffee, a $6 coffee, a $7 coffee, a $9 coffee, Ben, how much is your matcha order from Obetendel's? $15 or something? $29 coffee that Ben gets. <laughs> By dint of being able to do this, all of us, in global terms, are stinking rich. Let us also acknowledge that God's desire is that no one lives in need. Throughout and over and over in the Bible, he compels his people to look after the poor. What will help in doing all of this is not wasting our time chasing after things that will never be ours, and even if they are, will not bring us satisfaction. Even if we accumulate all the money in the world, it will only ever give a false and unsatisfactory sense of comfort. Our spirits know deep down that it's not actually ours anyway. Do we need to see another story of someone making huge amounts of money and being desperately unhappy to actually prove this point to us? I know we all say, yeah, but it would, I would treat it well. If I had lots of money, I would be fine. I would be fine. Not true. It's why people pursue it all the more strongly over and over again, thinking that just a little bit more will be enough. There is actually a mountain of research that says there is a tipping point to where we get to, where every penny we earn above that actually leads to less happiness. It's about $75,000 a year. Uh, David Geffen, who um, founded Geffen Records, and does various other things. He's worth about 10 billion. He said recently, anyone who thinks money will make them happy hasn't got money. Which is nice of him to say, but anyway. <laughs> Instead, says Jesus, pursue the thing that really can be yours, must be yours, and does satisfy me. Me and my kingdom. That's what we're after. Everything else, secondary, not really that important. 
Now, this is not to take away the joy that comes from owning or using our money and possessions, nor the joy of and meaning derived from the work which earned them. But rather, it's about our attitude towards them. This is all God's. Let us be continually thankful for it, and let us hold it with open hands rather than tight fists close to our hearts because we don't want anyone taking our money. So, is money ruling you? It's just a question. Or are you living blissfully uncontrolled by it? Let me tell you um, what I do now and again is I do a little inventory, inventory, inventory of myself about my attitude towards money, usually in preparing these talks. As I've said before, you just get to hear this for 25 minutes. I have to sit with it for weeks of actually having my attitudes towards money challenged by myself and Jesus, but mainly by myself. Um, these are the symptoms of money exercising control over me. I get very anxious. I get anxious about money. I don't even want to look at the bank account. If I don't look at it, it will be huge. <laughs> and I can't tell whether there's actually nothing in it. Or unrestricted spending. I know, I'll just spend money. Just out of interest, who, um, fantasizing. That's another thing, fantasizing about what I would do. We can all be honest, who fantasized about winning the whatever it was, two, <laughs> I haven't even told you what it is, the two billion dollars. Um, Dixon, how many houses were you going to buy? Just two houses, interesting. I was going to give it all away. We all do these things from time to time. My advice would, though, because they are symptoms of money grabbing control of us again, is to do what Nelly was talking about last week when it comes to prayer. Prayer is about letting him in, letting him into the conversation. One of the things that I will always go back to is an old priest once said to me, things breed in the darkness and in the shadows. But when we can speak them out, when we can actually voice our anxieties, our sins, our, the things that are holding us back, it's like God's fresh air just blows all around them and it takes away the stink and the stench and they lose a lot of power. Allow him into the conversation. Tell him about your anxiety about money. Tell him about your unrestricted spending. Tell him about your coveting and your hoarding and your fantasizing. Tell him, let him in, and see how all the power of that dissipates as God's fresh air blows all around it and kills off the shame and the stench. Be filled with the Spirit and have your heart changed. All matters of money are matters of the heart, ultimately. And only the Spirit can change our hearts. So allow him in. Allow the Spirit into your money. Point number three, the main point of the parable. What are we doing with what we've been given? So the first two servants take what they've been given, go at once and make more. There is a determination and a focus to their action. There is no idleness. Verse 16, they go at once, Jesus says. The Bible's really clear that um, 
laziness, idleness, is not godly. And the master's criticism of the third servant is in part directed at his slothfulness, verse 26. Because you, me, all of us as human beings were made to work. There is some Christian teaching that says it doesn't really matter what you do, it's about who you are. It's about being, just be. That's what God wants you to do. Obviously that's true, but it's both and. We were made in the image of God, and God whose image we were created in, is someone who is and who does. The very first commandment that is given to Adam and Eve is go out beyond the boundaries of the garden and make more garden, make more Eden in the chaos. Go to work, subdue it, bring it to life. It's what we are made to do. It's why so often when it comes to retirement or redundancy, people fall into um, depression. It's very common because part of us is not being allowed to live. And we were made to live. We have to, as a community, look after those who aren't in work. We have to pray for those who aren't in work. We have to care for those who aren't in work. We were made to work. When my dad retired, he was in the same job for 36 years of his life, same school. He taught at a school for a long time. 36 years. And, uh, but it was a boarding school and everything was sort of like laid on. It was just, it was this sort of bucolic, beautiful existence where all the meals were cooked, all, you know, he just played sport all afternoon. It was great. But when he retired, it was like everything fell out of um, his life. All of a sudden, it's not there anymore. And he pretty quickly just got very depressed. We are made to do things. And if we are not doing things, we need our community to help us find purpose and meaning in life. However, whilst there are lots of things that we can work for, one thing we cannot work for is God's love and approval. This can never be the motivation for anything we do, for the very fact that we have it all. Every last ounce of it, God's approval for you. As we often say, there's nothing you can do to make him love you less, nothing you can do to make him love you more. He just loves you unconditionally and infinitely. He pours out his blessing on you. And he says, my child, I'm so proud of you. I am proud of you because of who you are. That's what he always says. And equally, we should resist the temptation to work for the praise of men. I've got a number of friends. We all went to the same university, and then we went, uh, they all went into the city, uh, the city of London, worked in financial services. And uh, they did this, and I was always a bit jealous because I was working in advertising, not earning much money. Um, but I was having fun. We got to go to the cinema on work time. We got to play pool on work time. We basically got to have fun on work time, but earn no money. They all went into banking. And I would see them, and they were never very happy. I mean, it was difficult to ever see them because they were working 90, 100-hour weeks. And it became a sort of badge of honor. How, much, how many hours have you done? How early were you in the office? Uh, we went on holiday once with these guys. It was difficult to get them on holiday. And one of them spent the whole of the holiday. We were in Italy. We were in Tuscany overseeing beautiful rolling hills. It was the most magical place in the world. He spent the whole time taking calls and being on his laptop. I mean, I'm sure it was important, but it wasn't fun because it ultimately became, I'm going to prove to you that I'm harder working than you. Do you know what they were most stressed about? 
all of them were very stressed. Money. Ridiculous. So they'd work longer and longer trying to impress one another. Research shows actually that working more does not necessarily mean more being more productive. In fact, there are seven nations in the world, all of whose workforces are more productive than ours here in the US. All of them work shorter hours. Are you working too much? Why? Just a question. Back to money. The first two make more money and the master is pleased. Not because of the result. Sorry, not just because of the result. Well done, he says, verse 21, but also because of the method. You've been good and faithful, verse 21. And this is important. There are lots of ways to make money. Not all of them are good and faithful. And because purely making money is not the end in itself, the process by which we engage in it is of great importance in and of itself. So... I would avoid the temptation of get-rich-quick schemes, gambling, and playing the lottery. I would avoid NFTs like the plague. <laughs> Just take a screenshot. I know I don't understand them at all. But by contrast, use your gifts, use your talents, use your drives, and earn a living instead because the journey is as important and fulfilling as the destination. Which is ultimately the problem with the third servant. Maybe because he's overburdened by the large amount of money, maybe because he's scared of his master, maybe because he is just wicked and lazy, but the third servant does nothing with what he's been given. This is a mistake. So what have you got? I'm going to talk more about this next week, but what have you got? Don't worry if it's not the same as other people's. One of the biggest issues for people, particularly young people, is comparison. Comparing yourself, because, and it's all there, isn't it? We can just see what we could win. This and this and this, and someone doing better than L, or someone else. Resist the temptation to compare yourself and hear what Jesus thinks of you, what he wants to say about you. What have you got, and what are you doing with it? Because there is a godly expectation, both on the part of the master and on the good servants, that what they are given will be increased when they use it well and faithfully. Why? Because both the master and the servants know that healthy things grow. You cannot stop them. It is a principle of the kingdom of God. It's just inevitable. Um, for some reason, and this will be a large part down to my dear wife, Hannah, our children seem relatively normal. And they've grown. Physically, they are like giants. They're enormous. But also they're growing emotionally. They're growing intellectually. Evie, who is my eldest, now has what is commonly known as opinions. I, I don't know what I think about them. But she's got them because, and again, this is down to Hannah, she's been well-parented. She's been looked after. Because healthy things, things that are nurtured, things that are looked after, grow. The kingdom of God grows when it is looked after. There is an inevitability. We are not made for small things. 
The kingdom of God is not supposed to be small. I know um, people have different ideas about church. Again, I'm going to talk a bit more about this next week. Um, often people say, I don't want the church to grow. I like it being small. I can know everyone. And I go, shame on you. Stop it. The church is supposed to be enormous. It's supposed to be everyone. We want it as big as we possibly can. Now, I understand smaller gatherings, fine. But we want the church to be enormous. We want the church to take over the whole world. That's what we're after. So that everyone can enjoy it. So, whatever you've been given will grow, but only if you use it well. Finally, point four. Using it well necessarily means giving it back. The servants give it back to the master and they give all of it. Verse 20 and 22. And this for two reasons. They know whose it is anyway. They're just looking after it. And they are, as he commends them, trustworthy and faithful. Be trustworthy and faithful. What God is always looking for is people who are up for building his kingdom, who invest and reinvest themselves, their time, their abilities, their money, in the one thing that actually has eternal meaning. And his promise is that the more we prove faithful in doing that, the more he will entrust us, the more he will let us play with. This does not mean that we give in order to get. God is not like some celestial slot machine, right? I put in my dime and I get back a quarter and I keep going until I've got a huge... Have you seen that um, gif, gif, of people at um, thingy just pressing the buttons, all of them in time? Yeah, it's worrying. God doesn't work like that. The servant's reward is not greater wealth is greater responsibility. Would you like more responsibility in God's kingdom? Would you like to have more impact? Would you like to see more of what his kingdom looks like and see yourself be used in it? Then give it all back to him as much as you possibly can. They remain the master's servants through that, throughout. He does not become their sugar daddy. Instead, their reward is one of greater value than money and possessions. It is to enter says Jesus, into the joy of his master. As I said at the beginning, God wants you happy. Doesn't want you rich, necessarily. It's to share in the heavenly experience of his kingdom, of joy and fulfillment and satisfaction and fullness, here and now, in some measure, and in the future, without restriction. This is what we're called to. This is why we're here. Don't you want it? So, to end, what should we do with the money that we have and the money that we earn? I've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating. John Wesley, who I quite like, but he became a bit serious, uh, said, um, make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. I think we've covered making all you can. Save all you can. Biblical saving is not about hoarding up money and treasure for ourselves on earth. It's not about giving ourselves a sense of security. Money cannot do that. Hannah and I know two people whose houses burnt down. Fully house completely gone. Do you know what they both said? Independently of each other, they didn't know each other. said it was the best thing that ever happened to them. It was wonderful. The most freeing thing in the world. To lose everything. Money cannot bring a sense of security. Only God can. The lasting, deep, proper sense. But saving is also not about miserliness. Rather, it's like an antidote to the Western pressure to live beyond our means. 
It is a sign of financial responsibility. It's a resistance to becoming a financial burden to other people. And it's a way of being able to give to God's kingdom for future generations. The proverb says, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. So save all you can and give all you can in two ways. Firstly, freely and without caution, just like God does. He gives that which is of infinite value, his himself, to the whole universe. That's what he does. Such is his generosity. Be generous. It doesn't make any sense, the gospel. It's silly and ridiculous. It doesn't add up. It doesn't play by any rules. It's um, without caution. It's over the top. It's indulgent. Be like that. Be people like that. Free yourself from counting all the pennies and just give a lot of money. I, um, was, uh, I had coffee with someone the other day and then uh, we decided to um, do a return visit. And he said, I'd like to buy you lunch because I once heard a sermon from you saying God loves generous people who are first at the bar. And um, I said, no, please, let's, let's split it. Obviously, knowing that he'd pay. Uh, <laughs> And then he paid. But do you, know, do you know what I felt? I didn't feel, I'm great. Some of my teachings finally gone in. I, I felt loved. I felt really, really cared for. He was doing it because he didn't have to. He just wanted to. And I felt really loved. And do you know what it made me do? Straight away, I said to Hannah, I want, let's go out for dinner. I want to take you out for dinner. Because generosity breeds generosity. As I said at the weekend away, we, um, we did karaoke, and Daniel was there, the barman. Daniel was very nice. He was a bit slow uh, at kind of dealing with the money and the drinks. He was a bit slow. Um, and we had a certain amount of money that we had to get to. It was like $500 to cover the tab. Um, and I asked him at one point, what, where are we? And he said, it's 600 uh, But if you include tips, it's 1100 which was $500 extra in tips to, an, like, he'd probably admit it, not the greatest barman in the world. It, I, do you know, I actually cried. I found it really moving because that is the church being the church. Well done. That is people, and it was no, mis, uh, no surprise that it comes straight after actually a really powerful time of ministry. When we're all full of the Spirit, of course we want to be generous, don't we? We can't help ourselves. I found it really moving. felt really proud of us. So thank you for doing that. Be the first at the bar. Someone told me a while back, I think this is true, that wait staff across the country, you know, their least favorite shift, Sunday lunch. Why? Because that's when the Christians come and they don't tip. That's disgusting. Let's just shower it. Don't think about the, the, you know, the accounting of it. Just be generous. Throw it around, willy and indeed nilly. It will do you good. It will do the person who receives it good. It will do the world good. If you are worried about money, the best antidote to being controlled by it is give it away. It will be so hard to start with. It'll be like, oh, I don't want to. But then once you've done it, it's like, oh, that's, that, my life did not end. 
It was all right. Give it away. So do it extravagantly, and secondly, give prudently, knowledgeably, and regularly. This is not a contradiction to the first point. Research and back winners. Do everything you can to make sure the things that you support or already support thrive. Use your gifts, use your talents. Connect people to other people so that things can work. Hopefully it goes without saying, and this again is to those who call bread their home. Not all your giving should go to your church. Find other things to give to that really excite you. My children want to give to animals. I don't see the point. Uh, but they do. Because they love animals. If you love animals, give to animals. Don't give to animals. <laughs> Find things that you love and give to them. However, and this is where I'm going to end, there is a cognitive dissonance in not giving to the church to which you belong. It's like, I belong, but I don't really belong. I'm part of it, but I'm not really part of it. Your wallet is part of you. Your bank account is part of you. You want to try as best as you can to give yourself fully to the thing to which you belong. So you want to try and give money to the church. Because then you will be more fully invested in it. You will care more about how it does. You will see yourself as helping it. And it will thrive with you. Next week, I'm going to talk about diversity and unity a little bit more, about how we are all different, but we are all one. Be one with the church. It is actually what happened to you when you became a Christian. You can't um, deny it. You can't get out of it. You are part of the church, so give to it. Um, have you been told about a tithe in church before? Yes. Do yourself a favor. Don't tithe ever. Okay. It's completely and utterly erroneous teaching. Tithing died out with Jesus on the cross. He has fulfilled all Old Testament needs to tithe, to give 10% of your income. You do not need to tithe. Never tithe. You've heard it from me. Don't tithe, okay? Don't do it. Instead, what he has replaced with this Old Testament principle of giving 10% of uh, your income away is generosity. Generosity. so nebulous and difficult to pin down. But you know when you're being generous and you know when you're not, don't you? And this is what Jesus says. Let's go for generosity instead. It drives people who actually want a number barking mad. We're Americans. Give us a number. Instead, go for generosity. Uh, let me show you some very exciting slides. Um, this is our end of year giving campaign. So um, our total budget has gone up a little bit since June when we last talked about it. Um, that's the total budget for everything we do for 22-23. Uh, there is a breakdown here. Um, so the things that have gone up a bit are ministry because we want to do more ministry and staffing because we need more people to do more ministry. So those are the things uh, that have changed. Facilities have gone up about five grand. Um, but in total, it's not gone up much since June 2022. Um, 
if you want more details on it, we want to try and be as um, clear as possible. This is basically a pie chart that I can understand. That's why it's in nice colors. Uh, but if you want, you can dig down into all the things. If you want to know how much we spend on pencils, please uh, ask our treasurer, who will be slightly annoyed by your question and then tell you. Um, but we want to be as transparent as possible. Uh, but that's our budget. Um, at the end of year, we always ask um, for a certain amount to cover what we think will not have come in through regular giving. And for this year, it's uh, 200,000. Uh, which is up from last year, which was 150, uh, it's 200. So I want to ask you guys whether you um, would consider something towards this. As with everything as a life, in the life of the Christian, it's really about what the Holy Spirit is asking us to do. And I trust the Holy Spirit to speak to you I trust that what he says is the right thing, not what I say, not what your parents' church may have told you, but what the Holy Spirit is saying. But um, that's the figure. It's going to be very exciting as we see this trickle down as the gifts come in over the coming weeks. If you'd like to give regularly, this is the best way of giving for us, but this will not go into this total. Um, so you can set it up online, bread.church slash donate, I quite like giving regularly because then I don't really have to think about it. You just know that it's going out. And just so you know, Hannah and I review our giving every time we do this. We work out what we want to give um, and uh, we um, give to the church as well to uh, lots of other things. But anyway, go to bread.church slash donate. You can set up regular giving and then it just goes out. It's like your um, whatever, your uh, gym membership. It's not a membership thing though or a subscription. But anyway, you can do that. And then what it does is it frees you just to go, oh great, I can just be completely generous on top of that. Anything I think that's exciting, try and give to it. Because I know that this is just like a baseline going out. But I know other people's things are lumpy, their cash flow is lumpy. And this is why we do an end of year giving thing as well. So 200,000 is what we're looking for at the end of the year. If you have any questions about any of that, you can come and ask me afterwards. But for now, let's pray. And then we will sing a song during which we'll take a collection. The baskets will go around. There's a little um, QR code on there which will lead you uh, to our website where you can either set up regular giving or give towards this end of your year thing. If the band would come up, that'd be great. Let's pray, shall we?